The Bible reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. It can be found on page 1172 in the Church Bibles. Doing good to all. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. So remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Help us to understand, give us insight. But Father, we pray that through your spirit you speak into our hearts and into our lives. And that we hear you speaking and put into practice what you say. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When Debbie told you where everyone else was this morning, I'm sorry to say you've drawn the short straw. Um, But uh, it's good to be here, good to see you. Uh, If you're joining us online, it's good to see you as well. And Well, not to see you, but to have you with us. Um, I can't see you, you can see me. But good that you're part of our service this morning. We're going to be continuing to look at Galatians. And as we work our way towards the end of that book, We'll be continuing our thoughts there. A few years ago, or many years ago, I used to mark GCSE exam papers. Uh, The exam would take place at the same day across the country, and a few days later I'd go along to a meeting at the exam board offices. We'd be given the mark scheme and we'd spend the day probably marking no more than three scripts. And the idea was in that day that you took the, ex- the mark scheme that the examiner devised and tried to translate it into the reality of what people wrote on their papers. And at the end of those three, marking those three papers, the idea was we were all in agreement, we all knew what was allowed and what wasn't, and we went off home to mark the next 450. Now, 
if you're doing GCSEs or you've got children or grandchildren sitting in GCSEs, I just want to reassure you that wasn't the end of the process. I had to mark 20 and then send them off and get those checked. And if those weren't good enough, another 20 before you could launch into the mass of them. And every 100, they were checked again so you'd mark them accurately. But it's not dissimilar in this passage that we're looking at this morning. If you've got your Bible, please do open it to Galatians, to chapter 6. You'll find it on page 1172. But if you were here two weeks ago, you'll know that we were looking at the end of chapter 5, and Paul was outlining in quite broad terms those two contrasts. The contrast of living for our sinful nature that we were before we became Christians, contrasted with living for the Spirit, which is how we are after we become Christians. And this is perhaps brought out most clearly in verses 19 to 22, where Paul says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, and he goes on through a list of deeds there. But then in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against that broad brush, what we're going to see this morning is how he puts that into practice into some of the situations and issues that confronted the church in Galatia. Um, I have to say these are in some ways, random thoughts, as verses, you look at them, it's not clear how they fit together. Uh, but to try and get us, or enable us to get our heads around it, I've put them into three broad groups. And the first one is how we behave towards each other. And we find this in verse 1 and 2. The other warning I just want to give you is I'm going to spend more time on the first part of this passage than the end So don't worry when we're only on verse 3 that you're never going to escape. You will do. Just bear with me. So verses 1 and 2, how we behave towards each other. Now, if you're listening carefully when this passage was read, or if you look closely, you'll see that the vast majority of it is in what we'd call the male pronoun. It's all his and his And Paul begins this chapter with the word brothers. Now, I think I should say that there's no suggestion that this doesn't apply to the sisters as well. There's no suggestion that there's an equivalent chapter 6 that has been written to the women in the church. Really, it's just an encompassing phrase that he's using, brothers. And there's a sense that it applies to men and women, and some versions of the Bible, including the the latest edition of the New International Version, actually use brothers and sisters and their to make it more inclusive. But I don't think it's meant to be that this is just a problem for the men. These aren't men's problems. So, you know, if if you're a woman, you know, if you want to go to sleep, that's fine. But I do think it's actually for all of us not just for the men here this morning. But it begins with this word brothers. And it's an important point because he takes them back to that family relationship. 
Because if you look at the end of chapter 5, it's very much a picture of spiritual competition, provoking and envying each other. And and men can be competitive, can't they? But in that spirit of spiritual competition, Paul says, brothers. Reminds them that they're not competing against each other. That they're encouraging each other on their journey of faith in living the Christian life. So he starts there with brothers to support rather than to compete. And he looks at two specific instances which undoubtedly were issues for the church. The first one was those people who'd been caught in a sin. Now, that phrase caught in a sin brings all sorts of connotations, doesn't it, to us? Um, We use that phrase, aren't we, caught in the act. You know, that someone is photographed in a compromising situation or, you know, the door opens and you see someone doing something that they didn't want you to see. That sense of being caught in the act. I don't think that's what it's on about. It's not about, you know, sort of a tabloid newspaper expose. It's really about the people who are caught up in sin. They're trapped by sin. They can't escape from it. They want to live a different life, but they find they're being dragged back into sin. It's not about someone who's defiant and repentant. I don't care. I'll live my life how I want. I'll do what I want to do. It's about those who's struggling in the Christian life, who's trying to be Christians, but finding it difficult. And it may be that they're less well established in their Christian life. It may be they come from a family where the members of the family aren't supportive of their being a Christian. It may be that they've come from a lifestyle which is very counter-culture to being a Christian. And it's very much against being a Christian, it's a massive change for them. It may be that they're from damaged or abusive relationships and it's very difficult for them to act independently. But Paul's response in verse 1 is clear. We're to restore them gently. It says, you who are spiritual... Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether that was a specific group in the church or whether it was general. But the main judgment is that actually, it's really like we're saying, if you think you live by the Spirit, if you think you're being spiritual, then it's your responsibility to restore that person gently. The word restore... It's an interesting one. It's generally what you'd use if you were talking about mending nets. If you've been on holiday somewhere and you've seen subsistence fishing going on, you'll know that uh, fishermen often or fishermen go out and fish, and then during the day you see them on the shore mending their nets. They don't mend their nets so that they can throw them away afterwards. They mend their nets so they can restore them to use them when they go out fishing the next time and to make them effective. And that's what Paul is saying, that through 
gentleness and that spirit of being gentle, our aim should be to bring that person back into the full fellowship of the church so that they can play their full life as part of the church. Not to condemn them or to reject them, but to restore them so that they can be a fully functioning member of the church family. So what does that mean that we need to do? Well, I guess if we're going to restore them gently, it will mean not being harsh or scoldingly or rebuking them unnecessarily. It will mean accepting, not rejecting the person. It will mean showing understanding and empathy towards them. But ultimately, it involves restoration and not condemnation. As we'll see a bit later, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to get into a position of judging other people. And if we're going to restore people gently, that's got no part of it. It's about showing love. It's about showing forgiveness. It's about acceptance. You know, churches that have people coming to faith are often messy places. When we lived in Kidderminster, the stories I could tell you from there would make your hair curl. The church, under the previous vicar, had grown very rapidly. And all sorts of people had come into the church who had no church background. And I have to say, you know, three years on, the hassle they got themselves into was absolutely incredible. Because when people are coming to faith and they're seeking to follow Jesus, churches become messy places. They're not ordered. You see, people don't come and start following Jesus as sort of ready-made Christians off the shelf. Or even though, you know, those, those part-baked baguettes and things that you can buy in the supermarket, you know, where you take them home and shove them in the oven and they come out like fully baked. You know, they're not even like that. People are broken. Their relationships are often all over the place. And it's easy for us as a mature Christian perhaps to tear our hair out, to despair. But actually what Paul's saying is if you claim to live by the Spirit, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them, bring them back into that full fellowship. But he issues a warning, and if you look at the end of verse 1, he says you need to watch yourself, otherwise you may be tempted. And it could be that you'd be tempted into the same sin which they're struggling with. It could be that you'd be tempted to become cross with them and demonstrate anger, and that would be understandable but not acceptable. Or it could be, and I think this is perhaps the most likely, that we would sin by adopting an attitude of superiority. And we'll come back to this a bit later. But it's very easy, isn't it, to think of ourselves superior to other people. To think we wouldn't have got ourselves into that mess. And that's wrong because it's a wrong view of ourselves. But it's wrong because it's not restoring them gently, as is Paul's instruction. 
The second thing he goes on to say is it's about how you care for each other. And we find this in verse 2, where we're told to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Now, burdens brings that impression, does it? That image of being loaded up and weighed down, perhaps like a pack horse or a donkey or a porter or a sherpa. You get that impression of someone who's weighed down, an animal or a beast or being that's weighed down. And the challenge to us is to carry each other's burdens, not to weigh them down more, not to just let them get on with it, but to take and carry those burdens. Now, he doesn't go on to say what those burdens are. I guess it's perhaps obvious that it refers to those myriad of challenges and problems that we all find in life at different times. might be material difficulties, you know, where we live or we need something, things we don't have, what we're going to eat, maybe health problems, maybe relationship issues that we've got, maybe grief or mourning, maybe just the everyday hassles of life, you know, those things that get you down, that don't go the way you'd want them to do. You know, why have the children woken me up again in the night? Remember those days? And Paul says, those problems we need to carry for each other. The word carry is in the present tense. So it's not just you do it once, it's you go on carrying. That we keep carrying for each other. So we see someone struggling, someone burdened, we're aware of someone struggling, and we need to go on carrying their load to support them. What it means by fulfilling the law of Christ isn't 100% clear. He may be referring back to verse 14 in chapter 5, where he, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Because if you're carrying someone's burden, you're demonstrating that love. So there's an element that is fulfilled. Like that. But it may be there's just contrasting it with the law of Moses, with its legality and sense of condemnation, which is in contrast to the new covenant that we have with life in Jesus, which is about redemption and love. And it may be it's just a, just a general reflection of that phrase, that if we're part of that new covenant, it's not about ticking people off for not doing the right things or not sticking to all the right laws. It's about showing love and carrying their burdens for them. So how do we carry each other's burdens? I have to say... It's likely that other people's burdens are exactly the same as the ones that you struggle with. But we do need to find out what they are. And if we're honest, for some of us, that means perhaps doing a bit more listening and a bit less talking about ourselves. And perhaps that's when we're 
having coffee after church. Perhaps it's when we're in our small groups, our home groups and things like that. Perhaps it's when we meet people. But it means being ready to listen, to understand and to pick up, having the radar on. So that we're alert when people tell us things that let us know they're carrying a burden. And I wonder how good are you at that? How good am I at that? Because if we hear that, then that's the first part. When we see the burdens that people are carrying, then we can begin. And it may be that we need to be the direct answer to their needs. It may be that we've got resources of time or energy or possessions that they don't have. It may be that we need to support them less directly. Perhaps it means cooking a meal for them or dropping a card in or a note or an email. Both of our sons, oldest sons, when they had their babies, their Christian friends in church organised for people to cook meals for them for two weeks. I think they actually ended on for about four weeks. Not, you know, they got 14 meals, but no one wanted to do them short. But one of our sons' wives, who's not brought, been brought up in a church background, was shocked and surprised at that expression of support and love. It may mean doing something like that. It may mean, as I say, just dropping a note. It might mean an encouraging smile. Remember when the boys were little, we were in a church, not, not, not at St John's, and um, we sat down and they were everywhere in the service under the pews, over the pews, everywhere. And, and the only way we survived was that I was one end of the row of the pew and Rose was the other end, so they couldn't get out. And I would say that was the limit of our control. And uh, we'd sat in front of, um, perhaps I made a mistake, sitting in front of a family with three very demure girls. And at the end of the service, we were exhausted. And we, we turned around to apologise to the people sat behind us. And uh, the person sat behind us said to us, they're just showing their character and their spirit. And that was so encouraging. You know, that lifted a massive load from us. And it may be that's what's needed. It might be that sensitive smile or that word of encouragement. It may be something more practical. But I know when we've been through difficult times... We've been grateful that there's been other members of the church family carrying that burden for us. Because if nothing else, one thing we can do is pray. And you may find that you, you know of people who are struggling, you think, I can't think what to do. I can't cook them a meal. I can't drop them a card. I've sent an email. What do I do? Well, you can at least pray for them. Because Paul says we need to care for one, each, uh, for one another. By carrying each other's burdens. We're going to speed up. The second area he goes on to in verses 3 to 6 is our attitudes. And he starts with how we see ourselves in verse 3. How important or special do you think you are? 
don't deceive yourself. We can all get a trumped up idea of our own importance. And Paul says, be honest. In verse 3, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they're deceiving themselves. He says, be honest about yourself. And then he goes on to look at one trap that they can fall into. And it's in verse 4. He said, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself alone. This is the point. Without comparing himself to others. That's the trap we fall into, isn't it? We might think we're not the greatest always. But we also recognise that we're not the worst. And we make that mistake of comparing ourselves to others. And we gain false confidence and pride through it. When Rose and myself first met, we were teaching at the same school in London. And one Thursday evening, a group of travellers came and camped on the land next to the school. So when we went home on Thursday evening after school, they weren't there. When the school returned on Friday morning, they were there. And you just looked through the fence on one side of the grounds and you could see the travellers' encampment. And the children there were absolutely horrendous and awful about these travellers, shouted things through the fence at them, abusive to them. And what was clear was that the people who were most abusive were the ones who were generally picked on or bullied by the children because they felt they'd got someone now who was in a worse situation than they were and so they could take it out from them. Now, that was a horrendous situation and, you know, it got sorted. But I think there's something about that in all of us. We assess where we are as a Christian And we take comfort in thinking that some other people are worse than us. And I think sometimes, if we're honest, we think we're better Christians than some people. We perhaps spend more time in prayer. We go to more church meetings. We've got better knowledge of the Bible. We don't do what they do. And Paul says, look at yourself. Judge yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Why is this? Because he says in verse 5, for each one must carry his own load. Each of us independently will have to give account of ourselves before God. It won't be a ranking. And you say, you know, I'm three million 68,026 and there's another 10 million behind me it'll be about you and how you've acquitted yourself and how you've lived your life not what the person next to you or the person across the road or the person three rows in front of you has done I don't know if you remember that parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. 
about going to pray and there being a Pharisee there and a tax collector there. And the Pharisee goes first says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber. I don't do evil. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. And the tax collector can't even approach the central point of prayer and just says from a distance, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14 of Luke 18, I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We need to be honest about where we stand before God. Not just think of ourselves as better than someone else. The second attitude he goes on to is our gratitude. And he says in verse 6, and it's a fun little verse, and uh, that's why it's by itself in the versions that you've got in front of you. Some versions of the Bible put it with verses 1 to 5. Some people put it at the beginning of verses 7 to 10. It's a fun little verse, but it's about gratitude. And possibly because it's following on that sense of we've all got to take individual responsibility, that Paul is perhaps concerned that some people will say, well, those who teach in the church ought to take responsibility for themselves to provide for themselves. But Paul is saying that the one who receives instruction or teaching in the word should share all good things with the person who instructs them. All good things is the material blessings that we enjoy. The things we take for granted. And those of us who receive teaching or instruction in the Christian faith should share our material blessings with those who teach us, those who lead our churches. And in one sense, it's a direct outworking, isn't it, of verse 2, carrying the burdens But I wonder, do we recognise the sacrifices that some of those who teach and lead us have to make? Are we willing to share the abundance of the blessings we have with them? Or do we think it's up to them to demonstrate sacrifice and self-sacrifice in a way that we wouldn't? Ultimately, it comes down to our attitude, doesn't it? Are we grateful to them? Or do we expect them just to manage? And Paul says it's the responsibility of those who receive instruction to share their blessings with those who instruct them. Are we a grateful people? Or do we just take people for granted? That's what's at the heart of this, so the challenge. The third area that he goes on to is our motivation, and we find this in verses 7 to 10. It's set in the context of a farming metaphor. He says, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The seeds that you sow give you the crops that you get. I did feel one of my monge too 
seeds was growing particularly well, particularly high compared to the others, particularly strongly. Came back off holiday last week to find a nice set of pea pods rather than one's two pods hanging from it. Clearly it had got mixed up by the seed seed producers. Um, It meant I reaped something I didn't realise I sowed. But it's obvious, isn't it? You can't reap what you don't sow. You can't plant one thing and get something else. And verse 8 is the, the key hub verse that this rotates around. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. It's taken us back to those two contrasts that we saw in chapter 5. Those two alternatives. You can live by your sinful nature, by the flesh, or you can live for the spirit as a Christian. We can live with a sinful nature, for our sinful nature, which is dominated by our greed and our selfishness, which places us at the centre of everything. Or we can live to please the spirit which recognises God as the creator and Lord of all, and we seek to serve and follow Jesus. Those are the two choices. But if you sow the sinful nature, to please the sinful nature, then what you reap is ultimately decay and corruption and rotten and leading to destruction. Whereas if you sow to please the Spirit, it results in eternal life. You can't expect to live your life sowing to please your sinful nature and expect to get eternal life. You sow, you reap what you sow. So what does living to please the Spirit look like? And we get a hint in verses 9 and 10. It's shown by doing good. So verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Paul doesn't spell out what he means by doing good. Undoubtedly, those things that are morally right. It's those things of the spirit rather than living for our sinful nature. But it means selfless acts rather than selfish acts. It takes us back then, doesn't it, for looking out for others. It means building others up rather than lording it over them. It means doing those things that bring glory to God rather than give credence to ourselves. He gives us three exhortations. Not to become weary. So it's not a case you do, I did a good thing once. Tick. Don't become weary in it, you've got to keep doing it. Persist in it. He talks in verse 10 about taking opportunities You've got to be looking out for the opportunities and grabbing them to do good. 
and it's about being done to all people. There's a universality there, but especially to the people of God, to our fellow believers. And that's important. Because how do people who are not part of church, who are not part of God's kingdom, know what the love of God looks like? Well, the answer is they see it in us. Or they don't. And as we demonstrate that doing good, that love to others, especially in the church, then people see and are amazed. And it turns them to the love of God for them. Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we would be the people who do good. We'd be the people who carry each other's burdens. We'd be the people who don't judge. Who don't consider ourselves better than others. But Father, we recognise we can't do this in our own strength, in our own might. Father, we need the transforming of your Holy Spirit to make us into those sort of people. And Father, we pray this morning that you change us to be the people you want us to be. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen.